welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. I know that there are some visitors here, probably for Mother's Day. You're visiting your mom or something like that. Or maybe you wanted to see how our Mother's Day sermons go. Um, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. We don't have a Mother's Day sermon for you. Or maybe, I guess, if you squint, like, the sermon could seem kind of applicable to mothers, but we're just getting into our series. Um, but after our service today, we actually have some stuff for the mothers. Uh, we know that motherhood is difficult, so we want to honor the mothers here. Uh, we also know that motherhood and just uh, Mother's Day, thinking about being a mother, can be painful for a lot of us. So hopefully just uh, what we have for you is just a small token of appreciation and thanksgiving for, for you, and really we just want to focus on God. Um, today, we're continuing our series in Jude. Um, we're kind of sticking with the scripts, what we normally go to. So if you could open your Bibles to Jude, it's the second to last book of the Bible. We're calling this series, this, uh, this series through this short but really profound and deep letter, Once for All. And the reason why we're calling it this to remind us is because Jude warns his readers, and by extension us, that we shouldn't depart from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If we do this, if we go away from the doctrine, if we go away from the truth that was given to the church at the very beginning, delivered once for all, if we wander away from that, it'll lead to disaster and ruin for you and for me, for the church. Now we're going to be in verses 5 through 7 today. There's only one chapter in this book, so I don't even have to mention what chapter it is, verses 5 through 7. But here's the thing about Jude, okay? And I just want to put it out there. I'm probably going to say this every week uh, for this short series. Jude is not an easy book to understand, all right? It's probably, I don't know, maybe the craziest book in the Bible. Um, and you'll see why in verses 5 through 7 and through the rest of the book. Jude isn't T-ball, okay? Not saying other books are elementary or anything like that, but a lot of other books are on the surface easier to understand. Jude isn't T-ball. It really is the big leagues, okay? Like, Jude is throwing a hundred mile per hour fastballs at us, and if we're not used to it, we're gonna whiff every time. So we're gonna have to take some time to really unpack this stuff, okay? It's, it's not milk, okay? It's meat, okay? So we're gonna have to chew on this. Almost every verse requires some pretty heavy explanation. So it's going to be a little different, but if you're kind of a Bible nerd, maybe you'll like it more. Okay, we're going to have to get into some exegetical stuff. Uh, maybe this is my Mother's Day gift, right? If you're really a Bible nerd and a mother, then God bless you. Let me lay it out for you guys like this. Okay, I want to give you kind of the big picture so you're not totally drowning. Jude is a book about false teaching, okay? And there are a lot of books in the New Testament about false teaching, but a lot of the other books, they have to do with specific false teachings that were showing up in the church. Certain ideas, uh, certain teachers, certain like wrong paths that people were following. Jude is more general in how he approaches it. What he's doing is he's showing us what to do about false teaching and false teachers in general. Right? He says there are a lot of grifters, a lot of charlatans. There are ideas that sound good, but they ultimately lead astray. He says they're all out there. They lead to sin instead of salvation, the flesh instead of faithfulness, hell instead of heaven. But instead of kind of unpacking each and every single one, okay, trying to take kind of a very specific scalpel approach, 
Instead, he steps back, and what he does is he helps us to understand kind of how false teaching works in general. What are the common threads among every single false doctrine that is out there? There are certain things that tie together everything and everyone that would lead us astray. And today in this passage, Jude actually talks about why this is important too. So let me read verses 5 through 7. I'll pray for us and then we'll get into it. Okay, we have a lot of work to do, so let's get into it. Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we, as uh, our brother Jeff prayed, we, we thank you for the mothers that are here. God, we pray for your blessing upon them. And I pray that you would give them strength, God, and joy in this calling that you've given to them. God, I pray for those who um, maybe struggle on Mother's Day. God, for various reasons, God, I pray that you would be their comfort and their joy and their peace today. And God, I pray for all of us as we sit before your holy word. I pray that you would open it up for us. Jude is not an easy book for us to understand. God, but we know your word speaks truth. That your word is ultimately clear and it's intended for us to understand. God, it it trains us. it, It corrects us. It Uh, rebukes us even. It equips us to be men and women of God. So God, I pray that you would do that work in us today. I pray that you would give me clarity as I speak. I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear as we spend this time sitting under your inspired word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever gotten lost? Now, maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't get lost, right? You just take the long way every once in a while. Or maybe you do get lost sometimes because people give you bad directions or you use Apple Maps instead of Google Maps. Or maybe there were some, I don't know, unexpected obstacles in the way. Or maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't like to follow maps or prescribed routes. Maybe you just like to, you know, lean into your inner free spirit and just go where the wind takes you. John Bunyan's classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, is... In a lot of ways, a story about staying on the right path. If you don't know the basic plot, the main character's name is Christian, and he lives in his hometown, which is called the City of Destruction. Now, he's there. He has this heavy burden upon his back that is weighing him down. He doesn't know what to do about it, but then he meets a man named Evangelist. Again, it's an allegory. Okay, it's pretty clear who some of these people are. He meets a man named Evangelist who sets him off on a straight and narrow path. He says, go to the straight and narrow gate and there you will find the entrance to the king's highway and it will lead you straight to the celestial city. So he goes on this path. He goes to the place of deliverance, the cross of Calvary. And ultimately he gets on the king's highway and he starts heading towards the celestial city, which is heaven. 
The path is straight and narrow. Just follow on it, right? Stay one foot at a time, one step at a time, and you will surely get to where you want to go. However, even though it's simple, it's not easy. And Christian finds this out right away. And if you read this story, you know that there are all these obstacles that he faces. Even early on, he comes across this place called the Slough of Despond. It's a swamp that represents the discouragement and despair we can often feel as believers. He feels the weight of the burden on his back, which represents his sin. He is discouraged. And Christian, he gets overwhelmed with how difficult it is to keep going on this path. Later on, he comes to the famous Vanity Fair, filled with every worldly temptation imaginable, entertainment, pleasure, luxury, amusement, whatever you can think of, whatever people in this life want, whatever tempts us, it's there. And Christian, he is tempted to get off the path and just stay at this fair. Along the path, he encounters the house of the interpreter, which diverts his attention from the straight and narrow. He has to climb up the hill of difficulty, which threatens to break his resolve. He, he feels like he wants to seek an easier way, a different path. This book, Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory of the Christian life. So you could say in a lot of ways, the Christian life is a story about staying on the right path and all the different things that might take us off of that path. In fact, Jesus even used the same metaphor in Matthew 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And it's actually Bunyan who used the same metaphor as Jesus. Now, I know that not everyone here is a Christian. You don't claim to be a Christian. We're glad you're here. Um, but most of you are Christian. And most of you and many of you have been Christian for at least a little while. You're not a brand new convert. And if you've been trying to live as a Christian for any amount of time, let me just ask you, let me just put it out there. You know, right, that being a Christian, living the Christian life, walking the Christian path can be difficult. It can be hard. It's not always easy. There are times when we, when we face massive discouragement, times where we're not even sure if we are a Christian. We're falling into old habits and patterns. We're struggling with the same old sins. Maybe we learn something about ourselves that's not very flattering. Christianity can be hard. There are times, too, when we are tempted by what the world has to offer, where we feel like it would be just more enjoyable. It'd be more fun to not be a Christian. I could do whatever I want. I can enjoy whatever I want. I wouldn't have to worry about pleasing God if this is right or wrong. Sometimes it's not even really bad things that we want. We just don't want to live for God anymore. There are other things that we'd rather put our time and attention and energy into. I mean, we live in an age of distraction. There's so many things that could take us away from what is truly important in life. And then, of course, sometimes it just seems easier. It seems easier to give up. It's not even that you're tempted by something else. You just feel like, this is too hard. I just want to relax. I just want to rest. I don't want to worry about right and wrong. I mean, even practically. Wouldn't it be nice to have Sundays off? Why do they meet on Sunday afternoon? It's in the middle of my day. I mean, I feel that way sometimes. And I'm a pastor, so I wonder. I get paid to be here, so I don't know how you guys feel. 
It's uncomfortable sharing the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor. Right? Sometimes it's not very exciting to crack open the Bible in the early morning hours. And there are going to be people who tell you, and maybe you know these people, preachers in sermons, authors in books, randos online, friends, family even sometimes, who might just tell you, you know what? It's okay. It's okay to get off the path. You can get back on at a later date. Or if you get off, there are many ways to get where you want to go. It's fine. But here's the question. If you get off the path, where do you think that's going to lead you? I mean, if you're not on the path, doesn't that mean that you're lost? You know, we're just starting to get into this book of Jude for real. We introduced the book a few weeks ago. We introduced who Jude is. Remember, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He's most likely the youngest of all of Jesus' brothers, the son of Mary. A few weeks ago, we call, uh, we talked about how Jude is a call to contend for the faith. Jude said that he wanted to. In, in an ideal world, he wished that he could have just talked about how they have a common salvation and they could just fellowship together. But because of certain issues that he's noticed creeping into the Christian church, he felt compelled to call them to contend. He said, you guys are asleep at the wheel. Don't you know that there are things that are working against you that you need to be aware of? Now Jude is getting into kind of the body of the, ser- uh, of the letter, and he wants to remind his readers that there is a cost to strain from the path. Our text today is a reminder and a warning. And understand that this warning, this reminder, was written to them, but it's really for us. It's anyone who reads this letter. The path we're on determines our destination. Where we're headed is where we'll end up. So let's get into it. And this text actually breaks down really neatly into three verses, three points. Okay, each point is a different example of going off the path and where that leads. Okay, three different ones. So we'll look at each uh, one after the other. First, the faithless, the faithless. That's the first example. The faithless show us what happens when you stray from who God calls us to believe in. That's Jesus. Look at verse five. Jude starts off by saying, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Okay, stop there. Okay, now Jude says he wants to remind them of something they once fully knew. And we got to appreciate kind of how he's talking here. It's interesting. Why would he say it like this? If you fully know something, doesn't that mean that you just know it? How could you, why, why would you need to be reminded of something that you know cold? Well, I was actually thinking about this the other day because I had to get new tires on my car. What happened was uh, I, I turned on the car and then that little warning light came on. You know what I'm talking about that says that your tire pressure is low. I didn't even know which tire it was, so I took it to the gas station and I filled up the tires. And I had heard somewhere, I'm not a car expert, but I had heard that if like the temperature drops massively, like in a short period of time, then it could deflate the tires a little bit. I don't know if that's true or not. Someone can correct me later. Uh, I'm a pastor, not a mechanic, um, but I just filled it up. I didn't see any nails or anything. But then a few days later, it showed up again. So then I knew that something was going on. So I filled it up again, and I just pretended not to worry about it. I just pretended it didn't exist. But then it happened again. So I was like, okay, I got to take it to the shop. And I said, hey, can you remove like the nail or something? I don't see it. They said, actually, sir, your tires are super worn down, and you need new tires. 
And uh, I was like trying to scam me or something, trying to get me to buy new tires. So I asked Eric, and he said, wow, your tires really are worn down. So I had to get new tires. And it made me think about this. Now, I know the analogy breaks down. You can't get new brains. But the thing is, tires, eventually, they will wear down. They are not perfectly airtight permanently. You understand this, right? Even though they do hold air for a long time or nitrogen or whatever you have in it, eventually due to wear and tear or nails or even just by the fact that they are not uh, permanent, they have to be replaced, they lose air. And in the same way for us, even if we know something completely, even if we're filled with knowledge, eventually we're going to forget. In fact, it doesn't take a long time. We learn something on Sunday. By Monday, we're not even thinking about it anymore. It's not that we forgot completely. You understand this. But we still need to be reminded. I remember a pastor from seminary who once said something like, you know, Christians always want to learn new truth. They always wanted to get into more complex things, get into the weeds. But he said, actually, what we need to do as Christians, what we're called to, is to grasp the basic truths and remind ourselves of them again and again and again because they're the most important truths. The longer you're here at Zoe, the more you'll notice we aren't saying new things all the time. Our goal isn't to move further and further to the frontiers of theology, even though we'll get there sometimes. What we want to do is we want to major on the majors. We want to stay close to the center. So what we want to do is hit home a lot of the same truths over and over, hopefully in fresh ways. That's why we go to different books of the Bible. But the Bible itself hammers home the same truths again and again and again. Why? Because we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is. We need to be reminded that salvation is by grace through faith alone. We need to be reminded that God is in control. He has a plan. We need to be reminded that life is short and eternity is real. We need to be reminded because even if we know these things, even if we heard them before, it doesn't mean that they're going to stay at the forefront of our minds and at the center of our hearts. To understand the most important truths aren't things you need to hear just one time. The things we need to hear throughout our lifetimes. So what does Jude want to remind his readers? What's this thing that they once fully knew, this basic truth? Verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, here's the thing about Jude, okay? The references he makes... He assumes that his readers know it. it it's basic. It's, it's the ABCs of the faith. And his original readers probably would have known these things. However, to us, what he brings up are some of the most obscure things in the entire Bible to the modern American Christian. This is why, as some commentators call it, Jude is the most neglected book in the church today, at least in the New Testament. It's not often taught. It's not often preached because when you read it, it's not just what does this mean? It's what is Jude even talking about? I don't even know what he's saying. So what is Jude talking about here where Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt? I don't remember reading that in my Bible. We'll turn to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. That's the fourth book of the Bible. We got to go way back in time. Numbers chapter 14. Even going here is not going to answer all your questions, but this is where we're going to start. Numbers 14. Now, the book of Numbers, a lot of people don't like to read it, okay? It's called Numbers. They're not really into math. In the Hebrew Bible, though, it's not called Numbers. It's actually called In the Wilderness. And that's what the book is about. It's called that because 
Numbers covers Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness between slavery in Egypt and them settling in the promised land. Now, you got to understand something. This wasn't due to necessity. It's not because Egypt and the land of Canaan were 40 years apart. They're relatively close. In fact, in Numbers 14, they actually are already there before the 40 years are up. It's been just months. But the reason they ended up wandering in the wilderness for four decades is because of what happens in this chapter. So let me read, starting in verse 1. Actually, uh, yeah, let me start in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Okay, why are they crying? Why are they weeping? It's because they got to the promised land. They thought that they were going to just go in. They sent 12 guys to check it out. And they go in and they say, wow, it's really nice. It's got everything you would ever want. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. However, there are really strong people there who want to kill us. So the people hear this. They hear about this obstacle, and they think, okay, It's too scary. Verse 2, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Okay, so it escalates pretty quickly. Verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, so they hear about how scary it is, they get afraid, and they decide not just to cry and be sad about it, they actually turn against Moses and Aaron and even God in this moment. They want to go back to Egypt, which means what? It's slavery. They were crying out that God would deliver them from slavery. He did with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Now they want to go back. And God tells Moses in verse 11, you know what? Forget these people. Can't work with them. I'll let you into the promised land and I'll make a new nation out of you because these people, I've done so much for them and they don't even understand what they have. But Moses asked for God to forgive them. God does. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But look at what he says. But truly as I live, which is forever, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness... And yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. The punishment, understand this, is giving them exactly what they wanted. They said, you know what? We don't want to go in, actually. Never mind. We want to go back into Egypt. God says, okay, as you wish, you will not go into the promised land. Now, he spares them from total abandonment. He does forgive them. He doesn't destroy them outright in an instant. He doesn't send them back into slavery either. But they asked and they received. God would make them just wander in the wilderness in a circle for 40 years until that entire unbelieving generation passed away, and then their children would inherit that land, along with Joshua and Caleb, the two who believed in God. Now, back to Jude. Okay, keep this story in your mind. Go back to Jude. This is what Jude is referencing here. And for his primarily Jewish audience, Jude probably was living somewhere kind of in the ancient Near East, the kind of near where Israel was. They knew the story. The people knew the story. One of the darkest points in their people's history where they actually turned on God to the point where they wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. That's what he brings up. But what is the lesson? 
Okay, why does Jude bring this up? What is the reminder? What is the warning? Look carefully at what words Jude chooses to use. Notice in verse 5, he says, first of all, that this was Jesus who did this. Did that catch your attention at all? It was Jesus who did this. Second, he says that Jesus first saved a people out of Egypt. And then he says they were destroyed for what? Not their rebellion, not their sin. That was surely part of it, but that's not what's highlighted. They were destroyed for not believing. Let's unpack this. Okay, first, he says that Jesus did it. Now, if you know the Bible at all, this would be a little surprising for you to hear. Jesus was his older half-brother. He saw Jesus in the flesh. Jude did. He knew Jesus was born to his mother, the Virgin Mary. If there was one thing he was sure of his whole life, it was that Jesus was a human being, a real human. However, here he speaks of him doing something thousands of years in the past, before the incarnation, before Jesus was even named Jesus by his parents. So what's going on here? Well, Jude is connecting the dots. Understand that until Jesus rose from the dead, Jude didn't believe in Jesus. Okay, he did believe that Jesus was a man. He grew up with him, but he didn't believe that he was also God. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, things changed. And Jude, who saw him, believed to the point where he would write in this letter, calling himself, look at the first verse again, a servant, in the original Greek, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. You say that about your own brother. He believed that he was more than just a man. In fact, look at verse 4. What does he call him? Our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I mean, can we appreciate how crazy this is? That Jesus' own brother would recognize the deity of Christ. That's what he's doing here. This is Christology 101 kind of on the ground. Jesus was truly human. He was one of us, and yet at the same time, he was God, very God. Not 50% of each, but 100% of both. Jesus was a man, and yet more than a man, he is eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So connecting the dots, it wasn't just the Father who saved his people out of Egypt. It was the Lord. Who is the Lord? Is Jesus Christ. The human Jesus wasn't born yet, for sure, but God the Son was there. And in rejecting God, the people of Israel were rejecting not just the Father, but God, all of him, if I could put it that way. Now, why do you think Jews specifically singles out Jesus here? Why would he say this? What connotation does Jesus have among Christians? I know this is a lot of thinking, okay? But again, I said, Jude, it's kind of next level. What connotation does Jesus have? What does Jesus' name even mean? We said this before. The name Jesus means the Lord, Yahweh, is salvation. Salvation. Jude is making a point, And he hammers this home by saying that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. This is very intentional. Jesus saves, and yet what did the people do? They turned away. How? With their unbelief. And what did this lead to? It's very clear in verse 5. It leads to them being destroyed. Now let me explain this by way of an old 90s commercial. 
Growing up, there was this company, this auto insurance company that would play this local ad on TV. And I just had regular TV. We didn't have streaming back then. Uh, I didn't have cable, okay, or anything like that. I was just a humble uh, person destined to be a pastor, right? You know, living in poverty. Just kidding. Uh, but this auto insurance company, they would have these hilarious commercials that would always, uh, they always stick out to me. So, for example, one of them, how it went was, this guy is gambling. Okay, I'm not endorsing gambling. Okay, I just saw this as a child many times for some reason. Uh, he was gambling. They're playing poker. And he, he has a good hand or whatever. And the guy across from him says, you know, I don't have any more chips, but I'm going to gamble my car. It's a Porsche, right? And the guy goes, whoa, 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 right? Are you insured? Right? And he says, of course I'm insured. He says, by survival, though, auto insurance company? He says, no. He says, I'm not going to take that bet. Now, of course, you could get your own insurance, right? Just win the Porsche and get your own insurance. Anyway, there was another one that I think helps us to understand what's going on here. The same guy, the gambler, he's just walking in the desert. It really is the wilderness, right? He's minutes away from dying of dehydration, okay? It's super hot, and then a car just happens to pull up along the road. And the person inside says, hey, do you need a ride? And he says, I do but are you insured? And the person says, yes, I'm insured. He says, by survival auto insurance though? And the person says, no. He says, can't take that ride. This person literally is about to die. I remember thinking, even as a little kid, so he's just going to die in the desert then. Just take your chances. He's going to wander in the wilderness until he collapses. It's so ridiculous that it stuck with me. It probably will stick with me for eternity. And yet that's exactly, that's exactly what this guy did. That's exactly what the Israelites also did. They'd rather go back to Egypt or die in the wilderness than trust in God to deliver them, even after he had already proven time and time again that he could do it. They forgot who God was, and they paid the ultimate price. And this is the first example that Jude is bringing up. This is Jude's point. If you or anyone does the same thing, and it's not a hard thing to do, will face the same fate. Remember Christology 101. Jesus is not just the Savior, but He is also Lord of all. He is God. He is to judge the living and the dead, 2 Timothy 4.1. And there is condemnation for all who do not believe in Him. Why? Because there is condemnation for all sinners. All of us are in a bad place, naturally. And God has the power and the ability and the willingness, even, to save people from their sins. But he calls us to believe by faith in Christ. Look, we're all sinners. We all deserve punishment. First death and then the wrath of God in hell. He is a just judge. He won't just let our transgressions slide. But this is the parallel that Jude is making. Okay, we weren't delivered out of Egypt. We didn't see the Red Sea splitting. We didn't see the ten plagues. But we have heard of an even greater salvation. The death and resurrection of Jesus the good news which is able to save not just our bodies, but our souls. What is to happen, the author of Hebrews says, if we choose to neglect such a great salvation? What is to happen if we choose not to walk the path of belief? It's the only path. If you don't walk it, we're doomed to perish. Jude is reminding his readers, all of us, that if we stray from the path of faith in Christ for our salvation then there is nothing but destruction. There's no other way but Him. 
So let's finish this first. This is the longest point, okay? This first point. All false teaching has this one thing in common. It leads away from simple and pure faith in Christ. It either denies who he is or it downplays the stakes or tells you that you don't need him to be good. They could be super different in how they appear, how they're packaged. One could be about worshiping like a different kind of Jesus. One could be about just earning your salvation by good works, legalism. One could be about just worldliness and just going your own way. But all false teaching leads away from, uh, leads away from just going to Christ, needing him for salvation. Placing all of our trust and hope in him. Remember the Israelites, they turn on God because they were afraid. False teaching, it preys on your fears. How often do we hear how we should be more afraid in church? In American Christianity, it's overrun right now with an emphasis on planning and programs and philosophies, all peddling solutions to our problems. If you do this, then it'll help you. If you don't do this, then you're ruined. They distract us from Christ. We're told to be afraid of the future for our kids, for our nation. We should be concerned, don't get me wrong, but our concern should drive us more to deeper trust and reliance on Jesus who has delivered us and can deliver us and will. So keep Christ at the center. I'm not saying don't be concerned about things going on in the world. I'm not saying you can only think about Jesus all the time, but keep Jesus at the center. Whenever someone tries to tell you that it's more about you, or more, more about something else. Resist. Make Jesus the main focus. Major in Christology. Believe in him and grow in your faith and abide in him every day. Because any other way can only lead to damnation. Because only Jesus leads to salvation. Okay, second point. That was the longest one. Okay, Judas, two more examples. Second, the fallen. So we had the faithless, the fallen. The fallen show us what happens when we stray from God who has from who God has assigned us to be. That is our stewardship. Okay, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own prop, uh, their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, so this is another example where he's like, I just want to remind you about this, and we have no idea what he's talking about. Or what is he talking about? Jude brings up a specific incident where angels fell and were judged by God and this just opens up a whole can of worms because this reference most likely is not from the Bible at all. Okay, the place where this story is most talked about, most clearly talked about, is in this apocryphal book, this non-biblical Jewish work called First Enoch. I don't know if you've ever done devotions in First Enoch before. It's really long. I haven't even read the whole thing. I was like, this is too long. I need to read the actual Bible. First Enoch is an ancient book, though. It's old, and it was very well read. It was read a lot by the Jewish people of Jews' day. And it, it gets its name from an actual biblical person, Enoch. So if you remember reading in Genesis, it, it talks about the people who were descended from Adam. And one of the guy's names was Enoch, and he was a righteous man. He walked with God, and God actually took him away to heaven directly. He never died. So this book is named after Enoch, and it's filled with all these stories. And one of the stories it talks about has to do with what First Enoch calls the Watchers. Okay, I know some of you are into like Marvel and stuff. Don't picture that. I just put it in your mind. Um, but the Watchers, okay, according to First Enoch, were angels 
whom God gave the task of watching over humanity. Okay, that was their specific role. However, some of these angels became infatuated with the beauty of human women. This is in the story. And leaving behind this position that they were given, this stewardship, they descended to earth to take human wives, and they ended up bringing a lot of corruption and sin into the world. And this is what Jude is referencing pretty clearly. Right? You can see what he's saying. They left their proper dwelling. They left their own position of authority. So what are we supposed to do with this? Okay, does this mean we should all read First Enoch? Is this some sort of tacit endorsement of First Enoch's veracity? Should it be in the Bible? Is it all true? What are we supposed to do? Well, in college, I majored in English literature. I've talked about this before. And we had to study some of the old classic works of English, right? The greatest works like Chaucer and Shakespeare. And one of the classes we took was devoted completely to just one author and one work, John Milton's Paradise Lost. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's also really long, but it's a masterpiece. And what it is, 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 uh, it's basically an epic retelling, kind of in the style of like the Odyssey or the Iliad, kind of this epic poem of the fall of Satan from heaven and the subsequent fall of humanity because of what Satan does. Okay, so it's based on what the Bible talks about, but he just expands it with great language and imagination, and he gives drama to it and colorful imagery and all these things. And it's kind of crazy because a lot of the popular conceptions of like heaven and hell and Satan and angels actually come from the way that John Milton would describe these things. So you see like heaven in paintings where it's like clouds and like light is coming through the clouds. It's kind of a Milton way of talking about heaven. Now it comes from the Bible, but he just expanded kind of the imagery. Or even like thinking about Satan as the ruler of hell. Maybe you've seen like cartoons where Satan is like sitting on his throne in hell with his pitchfork or whatever, and he's plotting against heaven or God or whatever. Satan does not rule hell, but it comes from this line from Paradise Lost where Satan says, you know what? It's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. He's giving his motivation for why he would rebel against God. He said, I'd rather be in hell and be in charge than be in heaven and not be in charge. Now, he doesn't reign in hell. He's on earth, but that's where we get these images from. They're rooted in scripture ultimately, but Milton expanded them. He gave them kind of their vibrancy. Now, the story that Paradise Lost tells, it's generally true. It's from the Bible, but the language and the pictures it paints, they aren't inspired. And First Enoch is kind of like that, at least in this specific instance. Jude isn't giving endorsement of First Enoch as a true book, definitely not an inspired one. He's using the language of First Enoch, but actually what First Enoch is talking about is in the Bible. And I feel like i got to show you. So turn with me to Job. Look at Job chapter 1. This is right before Psalms. So it's like kind of in the middle, like a third of the way through the Bible. Go to Job 1. Now if we're talking about crazy books in the Bible, Job is, Job is a wild book. Someday we'll preach it, hopefully. See, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about angels and, and the supernatural realm, I guess you could say. At least not as much as you might expect. But there is one place where it does talk about angels quite a bit and Satan, and it's in the beginning of Job. Job begins, or kind of the, the plot of Job begins with Satan having a conversation with God in heaven. Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, verse 7. 
The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, there's more to talk about, but we'll, we'll, that's all we'll look at. Okay. Notice that Satan appears before the Lord with the quote unquote sons of God. Do you see that? In this context, clearly there are some sort of heavenly beings, angels, okay? And God interacts with them on a spiritual plane that is separate or different from where Satan has been, which is walking on the earth. Okay, it's kind of a peek into something that is normally concealed from us. Now, turn with me to Genesis 6. Keep this in mind. First book of the Bible, Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. This is a kind of a passage that is skipped over a lot. It's not easy to interpret, but I think if we put the pieces together, it, it, it makes sense. Genesis 6, look at verse 1. This is right before the flood of Noah. Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the who? The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then skip down to verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the, daughter, uh, into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who are the sons of God? They are angels. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they had children. Now, turn with me to, to the New Testament, Second Peter. Second Peter, it's not that much before Jude. If you don't know where it is, it's after First Peter. All right. <clears throat> Before First John as well. Okay, Second Peter. Verse uh, chapter two, verse four. Second Peter and Jude have a lot of similarities. Second Peter two, look at verse four. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And he goes on, but you could stop there. Peter calls out these angels for their sin. He's explicit about this. And in this context, it doesn't say what the sin is. But there are only two times in the Bible that are even alluded to or hinted at where angels are said to have sinned, okay? Once when Satan and those with him fell from heaven. Okay, when they rebelled. And, and even this is not super explicit in the Bible. Paradise Lost really opens it up and dramatizes it, but you read about it maybe in Revelation a little bit, in the Gospels a little bit, in the Old Testament prophets a little bit. But that's one time. And they weren't thrown into hell. They were cast down to earth. The angels became demons. Lucifer became Satan. So that could be one thing he's talking about. But the other place, the only other place, is what we've been talking about this whole time, what Jude is talking about, what Job helps us to understand in Genesis, the time when the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took them for themselves. When the angels left their proper position and dwelling, they were cast into hell. So Satan and his demons, they roam the earth to this day, but these other angels, straight away, they were chained up for all eternity. And first, Enoch tells the story in a more detailed and dramatic form, but, but it's in the Bible. You just got to connect the dots. The source is scripture. Now back to Jude, back to Jude. 
That was a lot of work. What's the point? Now that you understand what's going on here, maybe, what's the point? Look at the verse again. This is what Jude says. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What specifically is singled out here? Why? What was their sin? It wasn't even in the taking, even though that was weird and unnatural. It was that they didn't stay where God told them to stay. They didn't fulfill the responsibility that God had given them. They abandoned their post. See, the angels were created to serve God. They were given authority and they lived in heaven itself. And yet those who fell, they were locked up. Now, there's a comfort to this and there's a warning. First, there's a comfort. The angels, they sinned and they were punished. Even angels, for their sin, they are punished by God. This shows the justice of God. And I know, you know, nowadays we see all the bad things that happen in the world. We see all the atrocities. We saw, we see all the inhumane cruelty. We see all these people who do things that are unspeakable. And sometimes it seems like they get away with it, right? Like they get off lenient. Uh, they, they have a short jail time. And sometimes they, they don't get punished at all. And I know it bothers people. What we see in the scripture is that God is absolutely just. He doesn't even let the angels get off. Even for things as, in our minds, as minor as just abandoning their proper post. So there's a comfort here, at least when we think about the evildoer. But there's a warning here for us because guess what? God is absolutely just. Notice the words Jude uses. He says, their own position of authority. Their proper dwelling. The focus in Greek is on what belongs to them, what has been given to them, their responsibility. It's in here, and it's in English too. God created them, he gave them a stewardship, and when they abandoned it, they were punished. They took what wasn't theirs to have, they neglected what was theirs to do, and now they pay the price. we got to understand that all of us have been given a stewardship. Each of us has Numerous roles that we fill. We have responsibilities in our lives. See, understand that God has carved out a certain path for each of us to walk. And that path is of obedience. A path of good stewardship. And when we deviate from this path, when we neglect what he's given us, when we stray from the responsibilities he's bestowed upon us, it can only lead to judgment. See, sin isn't just doing bad things. Sin is also not doing the good things that God has prepared for us to do. Sin is also neglecting the things that God has called us to do. It's dropping the ball on our assignment. Now, this isn't making sense. Think more practically. For example, God speaks clearly in his word about what your responsibility is if you're a father. Okay, or you're a husband. Right? Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's what you're called to do. Or if you're a mother, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> thought I'd just throw that in there. Actually, that's kind of like, and know that you have a heavy responsibility. But anyway, for all of us, our roles, our responsibilities, they're given to us by God. And if we don't do them, if we are faithless in fulfilling them, God sees how we're doing. If we're harsh with our wives, if we don't love her sacrificially, and we're not just letting her down, we're letting God down. See, in Greek, 
The idea of ownership is here. When we don't do what we're supposed to do, when we neglect our responsibility, it might show that we're not even saved. In fact, the same word shows up in 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The emphasis is on, is on his own household, the household that he is in charge of, that he is responsible for. When we neglect it, it shows we're not on the right path, maybe not even on the path at all. So this is the warning. If we neglect what God has given us, if we wander from the spheres of responsibility in which he has placed us, we're flirting with judgment. Sin, even sins of omission, they lead to judgment, ultimately. Third point, quickly now, the fleshly. Okay, the fallen angels, the fleshly, these show us what happens when you stray from who God created us to be, namely holy. When God created us, originally when he created human beings, when he created Adam and Eve, Everything was good. They were holy. They lived for God. They were perfect. There was no sin. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so another example of people who strayed and then they were punished. Judgment. Now, this is easier to understand, at least on the surface. He's talking about what happened in Abraham's day, way back in Genesis. Abraham's nephew, Lot, you remember they used to be uh, traveling together. They kind of lived in the same area, but then their families and estates grew too big. So they separated, and Lot went to live in the city of Sodom, right next to another city called Gomorrah. Now Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked in the eyes of God, and God told Abraham, look, I'm going to destroy these cities. Right? They're too evil, too sinful, but your nephew Lot is there, so... I'm going to rescue him. Essentially, there's more to the story than that, but that's all you need to know. So the, these two angels, they go to Sodom and they go to Lot's house. But what happens is while Lot is hosting these angels who are warning him to get out, the men of the city surround Lot's house and they demand that Lot let these two angels and the guise of human men out so that they can essentially sexually assault them. This is what Jude is referring to. This, this very famous story, even to this day, he says that the sodomites and the citizens of Gomorrah, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, literally in the Greek, strange flesh. And this is true in more ways than one. They, as humans, wanted to have relations with angels. That's what the text communicates. It's in parallel to the angel's sin in verse 6. However, there's more to this, too. In their minds, they didn't know the angels were angels. They called them men, so they, as men, wanted to have relations with men. And then, of course, there was the assault aspect, which, I mean, they didn't want to have romance. Okay, you understand. All of this was wrong in God's eyes. And God did judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He got Lot and his family out, and then the cities were burned with fire. And this is the image that we have of hell itself, or at least it's similar this is where the now cliche fire and brimstone originates. Now, it should go without saying that sexual assault is wrong in any context. The scripture is clear, and the law of the land, our land, agrees. And you shouldn't have a relationship with an angel. I just want to put that out there in case you were thinking about it. But I know most of you probably aren't tempted by this in the first place. What's controversial in our culture today is the men having relations with men part. 
Now, I had a whole thing where I was going to talk about this. I think we got to talk about this maybe more because it's such a big issue in the church and in the culture today. Um, we'll unpack it more. I think it's it's important because I think on the one hand, you have a culture that says everything is fine and everything is good. It doesn't matter. And then on the flip side, you have churches that are, are kind of getting more and more obsessed with fighting against that, but maybe they've gotten too focused on that specific issue. Okay, we need a way to kind of see what the Bible actually says. But this is what the Bible says clearly, and I'll just put it out there. The Bible says that same-sex relations are sinful. Okay, I know that it's not a popular thing to say. Maybe in some churches it is a popular thing to say, but that is what the Bible says. It's not the way God designed us as human beings to function. It's not how life is brought into this world. But you've heard this before. Okay, again, we need to address this issue more at Zoe, I think. But just know that it's something that God does not want. But here's the truth for now. While it is sinful, and as Christians, we shouldn't shy away from it, you've got to understand that it's about more than just a certain kind of sexual action. Okay? Even though it is sinful, and as Christians, we shouldn't shy away from saying it, It's not the worst sin. In fact, what it's doing is it's giving us an example of how God looks at all sin. And I'll show you this in Matthew 11. Matthew 11. And this is the last passage, and then we'll we'll close here. Matthew chapter 11. You know, if you look at Romans chapter 1, as you turn there, don't go to Romans 1. But in Romans 1, Paul talks about how the world will just get worse, how God will give us up to do whatever we want. And he does talk about same-sex relationships and things like that in Romans chapter 1. But his point is that if we want to just do whatever we want and we don't want to listen to God, then God will just let us keep going down that path. Look at Matthew chapter 11. I want to show you this. And I think that this will tie together some of the main ideas Matthew 11, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their sin. Remember this and understand that sexual sin, all sexual sin, according to scripture, deserves punishment. Judgment is real. Sodom and Gomorrah should be sobering for us. We should be afraid even of the judgment of God. There is a proper fear, but look at Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. This is Jesus Skip down to verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus just starts calling out all these different cities where he had been doing these miracles. He'd been healing people. And then he calls out Capernaum, which had been his home base, where he did many of his miracles, where he had taught, where he had healed, where he had loved broken people. But after all this, they still did not repent. And what city does he compare them to? He, uh, he compares them to Sodom. He said, you know, Sodom, if they had seen the miracles that I have done, they would still be here. Regardless of the sins that they committed, what sins they struggle with, what sins they were actually guilty of, if they had seen these miracles, they would have repented and they would have survived. Verse 24, he says, But I tell you 
that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And this leads us full circle. What is the point that Jude is making with these examples? If you go away from Jesus, if you don't believe, if you don't repent, and remember what repentance means, it's simply turning around. You're going away from God, it's turning back to him. If you don't repent and believe in Christ, then there is no hope for you. There's only judgment and punishment. Jesus destroyed his own people in the wilderness because they did not believe. The people of Capernaum, because they did not repent, because they didn't turn to Jesus, because they were hard-hearted, they were judged. It doesn't matter what sins we specifically struggle with or don't. We are all sinners. It doesn't matter what specific sins you're guilty of or innocent of. It doesn't matter what good works you have personally done. The truth is all of us, all of us need Christ. By nature, we stand condemned. We would go to the judgment. Hell is real. That's what Jude is warning us of. The stakes are real. Even angels have felt the wrath of God. So he wants to remind us to go back to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you hear that? Sinners can become saints through whom? Through Christ alone. If we repent, if we put our faith in Jesus, if we look to him and what he accomplished on the cross, dying for our sins, paying the price, taking the judgment upon himself, that is the good news, that he took the judgment and the punishment. He drank the cup of God's wrath dry. He bore the power of hell upon himself. If we look to him alone, then we can be saved. And we will be. And this is the whole Christian life. Not straying from that. We'll close here at the end of Pilgrim's Progress. Christian makes it to the celestial city. And if you read it, it's not all hard. It's not all difficult. There is encouragement. There are friends. There are ways in which he feels the grace of God tangibly in his life. There are ups and downs. But he makes it all the way there to the celestial city. He and his friend hopeful, they are granted eternal life and joy in the presence of God. And there is one path to get there. His name is Jesus Christ. See, understand, we read it in the scripture reading. The disciples wanted to know the way. You remember that? And what did Jesus say? He said, you want to know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to God. No one gets to salvation. No one gets to heaven except through me. So this is a message about judgment, but understand at a deeper level, it's a message about salvation. The judgment, it reminds us of what a great Savior Jesus is. We need to be reminded of the stakes, but we also need to be reminded of the blessings of belief. Our sins are seriousness are serious, but God's grace and salvation are even greater. Will you pray with me? God, I pray, God, that you would give us a proper sobriety, that you would help us to see what life apart from Christ is like, only so that we could cling to him all the more. God, we need Jesus. He's the only one we do need. God, I pray, Father, that as we sing now, that our focus would be on him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.